in. Please, actually, please remain standing <laughs> while we read this, this New Testament reading and then we read our passage. And it just occurred to me that actually Pastor Scott said, usually you sit, but oh well. We're here to buck tradition, I guess. So Matthew 11, uh, verses 25 through 30. It's a short reading. Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Lord, Father, of, uh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and everyone to whom the Father chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from it. Uh, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And then we turn to the Old Testament, Micah chapter 2, and we look through the first five verses of Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it shall be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Before I dive into this passage, I should, of course, pass along uh, a greeting from the church in Grants Pass. It's... It's good to be here worshiping with you, and it's good to uh, kind of have this, this denomination, you know, this relationship where I can come and, and preach and, and uh, enjoy fellowship with you, and you can hear a, a, new, pre a new pastor preach every now and then. <laughs> it's good all around. But, all right, before we approach our, our passage today, before we approach our sermon, let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear God, we do pray that you would be working powerfully through your word. That you would guide my words, guide my lips, help me to speak truth to your people gathered here today. Please edify them, encourage them, and help your words be made plain and clear to them. Lord, we do pray that you would work powerfully here today. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. So, one of you, I think it was Randy, remembered... Randy? Yeah, remembered last time I was here. 
It was a Hebrew fest. You know, we talked about all the different names of the, the cities in chapter 1. And before that, we talked about the idolatry at the beginning of chapter 1. This passage, this particular passage, is much more straightforward. It's about oppression and greed and covetousness. It's about stealing your neighbor's uh, belongings and oppressing your neighbor and murdering your neighbor. And, of course, we have to kind of wonder, how does this touch down for us, right? How does this relate to us? Perhaps you're not into violent land theft or oppression of your neighbor. I, I certainly hope you're not, and I trust you're not. And perhaps you have no dreams of how to steal your neighbor's motorcycle, for instance, or, or your neighbor's house. But how often, we need, to make our, we need to ask ourselves, how often do we act out of greed? Oftentimes, I'm sorry to say, that's the driving force in our life. Even among believers, among those who know the truth, we often act out of greed. You know, we see this, uh, it's kind of a, a culture of greed, an environment of greed that our, our culture is, is encouraging. You know, we think of social media. Sitting on social media, scrolling through the news feed, we see other people's perfect lives, and we think, I want that. And we see other people's travel destinations, and we say, man, I wish I could go there. A lot of times, greed enters into our hearts, and it drives how we make decisions. We start trying to seek to copy what other people have, and disaster usually ensues. So we might not think this is super serious because it's so common in our hearts, but this is something that Micah says, watch out. This is serious. Here he's pointing to the sin of covetousness and greed. He's decrying it. He's confronting the people of Israel, of Judah, and saying, this will lead to death. In all this, though, God is sovereign. So this is our theme as we're going to be examining the uh, the the results of greed, the, the danger of greed and covetousness. Our theme today is God brings disaster to the oppressor and delivers the oppressed. So the person who acts out of greed and oppresses, God brings disaster on that person. And the person who is oppressed, God delivers them. Now we're going to be looking at this passage in three different points. And uh, these points are pretty slick in my opinion. We've got first... Devious dreams, verses 1 and 2. Second, divine disaster, verses 3 and 4. And finally, decreed deliverance. Six Ds, not bad. So, devious dreams, divine disaster, and decreed deliverance. First, let's talk about devious dreams. The devious dreams of the covetous, the greedy, the oppressor. The very first thing we notice about this passage is Micah is bringing his accusation, his confrontation, right down to the level of the people. In chapter 1, he talked about the nation. He talked about the sin of idolatry. And, of course, he talked about the conquest that was coming on the nation. But here in our passage, here in our passage here today, he's, he's taking this right down to the individual level. So, chapter 1 was about the, uh, the sin that was represented in in Jerusalem, you know, we look at, at 1 verse 5. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem, 
the capital city. This is where all this sin flows from. And it, it corrupts the country. And so Micah is saying, watch out for this sin. Throw off the sin of your leaders. When we have to ask, what is this sin? Idolatry, yes. But here in our passage, we see it's greed and covetousness and oppression. The sin of these leaders is made very obvious in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The rich and the prosperous of the land were filling uh, their pockets because they were filled with greed. They were filled with covetousness. They were overflowing with desire for what was not theirs. They were filled with lust for the belongings of the poor and and of the the citizens of their land. Now you might be taken aback a little bit by the language of overflowing with greed and lust for things that are not theirs. But this is literally the sin that Micah is talking about. Covetousness is not just, oh, I want that. Oh, I wish I had that. It's this overflowing saying, I want that so bad that I'm willing to take action, sinful action to get it. Now look at the description of the wicked in verse 1. We see that they devise wickedness. Micah says, woe to those who devise wickedness. He's decrying their sinfulness in this. But then he says they worked evil on their bed. So devising wickedness, devising evil, that's the headline. And then he goes on to talk about what this entails. They're devising wickedness, and specifically they're dreaming up evil in the night as they lay asleep. Then they wake up and they carry out their plans because they are able to. So it's really premeditated. And this points to their their leadership role. They're able to carry out their oppression because they're rich, because they're powerful. So they serve the God of themselves. What they see, they, they take. What they want, they chase. They don't carry out these plans to to honor some false god. Instead, they are literally serving their own passions and desires. They're carrying out their schemes and, and, and chasing their dreams because they can and because it makes them feel good. Now, this is all very general, and, and it's meant to be. It's really just a preamble to what's coming on uh, in the next couple of verses. The first verse is to show us how the wicked premeditate their sin. They think this through. They dream it up. And then the next day they go out and carry it out. Their intentions are wicked. Their thoughts are wicked. Their dreams are wicked. And their actions are therefore also wicked. We see this in verse 2. The actions is described. They covet fields. They seize them in houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. So their hearts, which are overflowing with greed, then lead them to act on their sin. And then, of course, they keep justice from overtaking them by oppressing the person they just stole from. So it's the sinful logic. How can I get in trouble for something if I oppress the person that I just stole from? Sin building on sin. Now, this whole idea of oppressing a man in his house, a man in his inheritance, is one that we should really... Unpack. You know, what does it mean to oppress a man's inheritance? You see a classic example of this in 1 Kings 21. Really the whole chapter. You can turn there if you want, but I'll just describe what happens. It's King Ahab. 
and Jezebel and Naboth as well. Naboth wanted to, to keep his uh, vineyard in his family. And Ahab looks at this vineyard and he says, that would be great for a vegetable garden. I'm going to make an offer to Naboth that he can't refuse. So he offers to buy this field from Naboth. Naboth says no. He says no. Literally what he says is, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. There's inheritance again. This is a key, key facet. So why did Naboth refuse to sell his property? It's not just because he liked the positioning of this field. Not just because he liked the way it looked and he didn't want to give it to the king. This was not Naboth fighting big government. This was Naboth understanding that the land was a sign from God, a gift from God. So, we see this idea of land being given by God specifically as part of the covenant, as part of his relationship with his people in Leviticus 25. We see God give the land to his people so that the, the rights of landowners were protected. Even if they sold their land, they would get it back a couple years later in the year of Jubilee. It's this permanence. So even if somebody is driven to very, very hard times and has to sell off all their land, God gives it back to them. And of course we see that this started, this, this provision of land starts in Joshua 18, verse 10 where we see God allotting the land to each family through lots cast by Joshua. So Joshua is casting lots, saying, you get this land, you get this land, as, you know, according to family. But who's really driving this? Who's determining what lots are cast? God is. God is apportioning the land to his people. So it goes to his people, and it goes to the families. And this land comes from God's hand and is supposed to, to stay in each man's family. It's their inheritance. To sell it is really a sin against God. To have that, that be handed over to somebody is to break the covenant. Thus Naboth refuses to sell. He's true to the covenant. He honors God by not selling his inheritance to another man. So in response, Ahab has a hissy fit. Ahab starts stewing over this. He, he lays awake in his bed, and he, he complains about this. And of course, what happens? Jezebel, his wife, sees this. She brings about the, the transition of, of, of land from Naboth to Ahab. She makes sure that Naboth is dead, killed for a false accusation. So the sleepless greed of Ahab prompts Jezebel to plot against and steal the land of Naboth, to steal his inheritance, to break God's covenant. So in this example, we see how serious sin is. It might start as coveting, might start as greed, but it leads to murder. It leads to the poor man being oppressed and the king stealing his lands. It's important to note that this is not this sin that Micah decries is not just the sin of a few rich people in the land. This is a pattern that has been set for the land for the, the, the citizens of Judah and Israel. 
It's a sin that has spread throughout the land. It's become such a common sin that God prompts Micah to address it publicly and, and openly. And we see this in the punishment that comes because of the sin being leveled against this family. In verse 3, it's against this family, the family of Judah, God's covenant family. So if this is against Judah, if this prophecy is to warn Judah about the danger of oppression, the, the, the fallout of, of covetousness, how does this touch down in our lives? Yeah, why is this so important to us as 21st century Christians? Well, it applies in a positive way and a negative way. Positively, we should realize how important inheritance is to God. God cares for his people. God cares specifically for his covenant people. And because we are given this inheritance, we're given an inheritance, we have security in Christ. When God sees his people in need, he provides for them. So we've seen this over the past year with with COVID, God providing for us in surprising ways through his church, sometimes through miraculous things like walking around the, uh, you know, an aisle in the store and seeing it full of toilet paper. A miracle. <laughs> Praise God. That actually happened to me. <laughs> uh, God provides for his people. He gives them what they need. It's a, a caring for them. A simple sign of this inheritance. And it's something we should remember, too, as we go forward. If we are God's people, if we enjoy his faithfulness, if we enjoy the inheritance he's given us, he will care for us in the days ahead. Positive. This is a comfort for us, but it's also a challenge. Because we're not free from covet either, covetousness either. We covet what others have. We have greed for what we see and we lack. We lie awake at night. You know, like I said at the beginning, scrolling through Facebook, wishing we had the lives of others. Or if you're not on Facebook, perhaps you're driving down the highway, and you see a nice Lamborghini go by. Man, I wish I had that. And that covetousness sits in our hearts and breeds murderous thoughts. We might not kill for these gifts, but we certainly murder in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, we need to examine our hearts, and recognize our sin. To covet and murder is sin that God will not leave unpunished. We must be honest with ourselves and understand that this is not just a sin of the Old Testament. This is not just the sin of the, the rich landowners in Israel. This touches down in our lives too, and God is displeased when we act according to greed. This brings us to our second point, divine disaster. So, we've talked a little bit about this punishment for sin. We should now examine the divine disaster that God brings on the evildoer. And we've looked already at the greedy dreams of the, the devious leaders. And next we need to look carefully at the response of God. So we see from verse 3 that God stands at the ready to bring justice to evildoers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. So right off the bat, he's addressing the family of Israel, and he says, Look, you plotted evil against me, against my people. Now I'm turning the evil back on you. So the phrase here, 
is quite literally, you know, instead of the disaster that we see here in, in our English translations, quite literally, God is turning evil back on these people. So we look back at, at verse uh, 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. That's the evil of the people, the, the villains. And then we see God saying, you devised evil, now I am turning that evil back on you. I'm devising evil against you. What this really is, is the, the law of retaliation. The eye for the eye. They plotted evil to come to the people of God, and now God decrees that evil will come back onto them as a result. Now we need to see a couple things about this evil. First, God promises that they will not be able to remove their necks from it. They will be humiliated and unable to escape from their just deserts. This punishment, of course, is the punishment of conquest. We see this in the conquest of Israel in 722 by Assyria. And later, there's the invasion of southern, uh, southern Judah uh, in 701 by the Assyrians again. Thankfully, they heed the warning to an extent. But later on, once they throw off the yoke of God's law, Babylon comes through and takes them out. They're led into captivity. And they have the yoke of, of punishment, of conquest put on themselves. So God says, you have thrown off the yoke of my law, so, so now I'm going to put you under a yoke of my anger and justice. You know, one commentator says, he, he draws the comparison between Matthew uh, 11, which we read before, and, and this passage here. He says, they who will not bend to God's easy yoke shall feel his iron yoke. That's what Israel is experiencing, this iron yoke which replaces that easy yoke that they had under God's law. So we see the irony of this chastisement. The Israelites had walked proudly through the land wearing these gold necklaces, the results of, you know, figurative, obviously not, not literal gold necklaces, but they're, they're wearing the finery of this oppression that comes from this oppression. And that's taken off and replaced with the yoke which, which bows them down, which they cannot escape from. This is going to be a time of evil and disaster for them. Another thing we should see from this is that justice, justice is not uh, reigned on these people in a time of generic you know, disaster to everybody. This is not just disaster on everybody uh, regardless of their position. This is specifically on the greedy robbers, the people who stole in the first place, who robbed a man of his inheritance. This justice comes on them because they stole from their fellow Israelites. So they'll be robbed and oppressed, just like they robbed and oppressed their brothers. We see this in verse 4. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes a portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate, he allots our fields. So this is a very complex passage. There's a, if you really dig into this, it looks simple on the surface. So if you really dig into this, you start wondering who the pronouns are talking about, uh, and it gets murky very fast. But, but this is really supposed to be read you know, on the surface level. There's somebody taking up a taunt, level, uh, a taunt song against them, leveling a song against the villains. 
God tells the, uh, the Israelites that there's an unidentified speaker who will raise a taunt song and a proverb against the evil land robbers and against those who, who live lives of greed and sin. This is the very shameful side of this prophecy, really. God says, I'm not only going to punish you, but I'm going to bring ridicule on you. He's going to raise up a nation to steal their land, and then that nation is going to gossip about them, to ridicule them, to taunt them. So we see this mocking song recounted in verse 4b. You know, the, the, the people who are sent by God to take down these villains, they, they say this taunt song, they, they chant this song, they say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our field. And of course, they're, they're copying in, in a, a taunting way what these villains, these land robbers, have said themselves. These land robbers, they see the Assyrians, they see the Babylonians coming in. And they say this, they moan this, they, they say, oh no, we're utterly ruined. The apostate land robbers, they cry out against the tools of God's justice. As the Assyrians and the Babylonians sweep through the country, they, they respond in panic disbelief, in indignation. You know, they say, we, we are utterly ruined. How could this be? How could God take away all of our, our gifts, all of our land, all of our inheritance, and give it to an apostate? And you see the irony, of course. They're the apostate. They've turned on their fellow Israelites, and now their land, which they stole, is being stolen from them. And they say, how can this be? This land is going to an apostate. But they do not understand that they are the apostates who have broken God's covenant. So, brothers and sisters, we need to see the true moral of this story, and that is this. God is just. There are the oppressed, the victims. There are the villains who oppress. And then there are these tools of God's justice who come in and wreak havoc on the villains. God is using justice here. He's dispensing justice in a holy way. He's standing up for the oppressed saying, yes, your land is stolen. Yes, your inheritance has been taken away. But guess what? The people who oppressed you are not going to get away with it. I'm sending some to, uh, to take this, this ill-gotten wealth away. So this is how seriously God takes sin. When we act from greed, when we think we can get away with greed, when we think that we can even desire what other people have and take it, or just lust after it in our hearts. We're not going to get away with it. God sees it. And chastisement will be swift. So now we see our third point, the decreed deliverance. You might have noticed that this passage focuses almost exclusively on the villain, you know, the land robber, and, and the victor. You know, God bringing in this justice. We have the devious dreams that the villain denounced, and we have the divine disaster that will be rained down on the villains described. But what about the victim? Where does the victim play into this? The person who's oppressed. What does this text tell us about the person who's oppressed? This is where we really get into the decree of deliverance. And this is where we see the comfort of this passage. 
So God hears their cry. He hears their cry. Part of the, the muddiness of this, this section of, of verse 4 is, it doesn't say if, you know, how many times this, is, uh, this, this song is used. You know, the first time this is used, it very well could be the oppressed person saying, how can this happen? How can God take our belongings and give it to these villains who are stealing from us? It can be a cry of, of impassioned uh, sorrow. And of course, the second time this is used, it's probably by the villains themselves, saying, how can our newly found land be taken away by the oppressors? And then the third time it's used, it could be the, uh, the tools of God's justice mocking. But long story short, God hears the cry of the oppressed. Whether they use these words uh, honestly and, and, and uh, in mourning or not, God hears their cry. God is their representative. He shows his faithfulness to them. He cares about the inheritance that he's given to his people. So he cares for a man and his inheritance. He's ordained the land to go to these people. Now he's going to take care of them, even when they're oppressed, even when their their belongings are stolen. So this compassion is real. It's not the main focus of this section, but it provides the backbone for what is happening in this passage. God cares about having his people walk humbly with him. He cares deeply about having his people obeying him. He loves his people, and he does not want to see his people die for their sin. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 18. God does not want to dispense justice with a high hand. He wants his people to turn back to him. But he's faced by evildoers who delight in disobedience. So thus we see God's eventual response as loving and faithful, even though it's chastisement. He sees his people straying, and he brings them back. He reels them in. He chastises them to bring them close to himself. So God did bring disaster, chastisement on his people. He sent the Assyrians to call his people to his senses, to their senses. And then when they ignored the Assyrians, he sent the Babylonians. The Babylonians carted them off into exile. To those who are evil and dissipate God out of purposeful, unrepentant sin, God punished them in exile by cutting off their line completely. This happened. Some people, some families did not return. God made sure that none of that family would come back to the promised land. But for those who repented, God restored them. He kept that remnant which came back to Israel. To those who repented, the day of disaster was only a time of chastisement. God brought them back from Babylon. And he eventually reapportioned the land to them. We see this promised by Micah in verse 5. He says, therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. It sounds like judgment. It is judgment to those who continue in rebellion against God. They're going to die in exile. They're not going to have anybody to... to to reapportion the land to. They're not going to have an inheritance, really. But the opposite is true, too. There will be some who do. Who do have one to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. So there's a day coming when God would bring his people back. He would assemble them once more in his presence in Israel. We see this, of course, in Ezra and Nehemiah. This coming back, this restoration. 
Verse 12 and 13 of our passage spell this out really beautifully. Let me read that for you. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on ahead of them. The Lord is at their head. So we see two images. The image of the shepherd, God the shepherd, gathering his people together. And God the victim, God the uh, victor, sorry, God the king, who leads his people to victory. He's going to lead them out of bondage to victory. So how does this apply to us? And we're not sitting in, in the, the exile in Babylon waiting for restoration. We're not waiting and, and hoping in God to restore us back to the land of Israel, for instance. But in a very real sense, humanity has been robbed. We've been robbed of fellowship with God. The fellowship, the deep fellowship of seeing him face to face. Mankind has sinned against God. In Adam and Eve, all man fell. All men fell. We've broken his covenant. We've, we've coveted. We've stolen. We've broken his law. We deserve to be cut off, to have no one to draw our line, no one to be our representative in the restoration of an inheritance. You know, Old Testament Judah could look forward with hope to future restoration, but many would not see it. But in Christ, we see restoration. In Christ, we see an inheritance restored, given to us. So we think back, you know, God used Joshua to portion out the land to the Israelites, right? Well, Jesus is the greater Joshua who brings restoration to us, the promise of heaven, the promise of that land where we will be united with Christ, where we will see Christ, where we will see God face to face. So whereas the, uh, the people of, of Old Testament Israel... They long for that day where they'd be back in their own homes, where they'd have their inheritance restored to them, the land that they needed so badly. We have an inheritance in heaven that we look forward to. We yearn for this, knowing that it has been accomplished in Christ. It's been given to us in Christ. We look forward to it with hope, with excitement. Another parallel is Judah needed to take Micah's word for it. They, they needed to trust that Micah's word of prophecy was true and that God would eventually restore them. But in Christ we have one who has already drawn a line in the assembly of the Lord, who has already portioned out our place in heaven. In Christ, we look back at him and we have confidence, we have faith that he cares for us, that he has given us a portion, he has called us God's sons. So the question here for you today is, do you look forward to this inheritance? Is this inheritance yours? Do you have confidence that God has called you his children? That he has prepared this inheritance of heaven for you? Or are you languishing in your sins? Trying to work your way back from Babylon? 
you trusting that God has given you what you need in His Son? Because God really does. He sees our sin. He sees the death that we deserve. And He sent His Son. Faithfully, mercifully sent His Son to secure that inheritance for us. To secure heaven for us. Through Christ's blood, we are washed. We don't have the guilt of sin on our accounts anymore. And we see the promise of, of, of heaven, of uh, unification with Christ laid out before us. Is this promise for you? Have you laid hold of it? Have you trusted in God? Have you trusted that Christ's blood is the only way to this inheritance? If not, today is the day to turn to God because otherwise, the punishment, the chastisement that we see here in this passage is for you. But the, for those of you who have turned to Christ, who trust in Him, who know that He is the one who gives us an inheritance in heaven, who will unite us with God. This is a comfort, because we see the faithfulness of God bringing his people back to Israel. We see his faithfulness in bringing his people to himself in heaven. God gives us a greater inheritance, a portion of the land in heaven, and in him we find true justice in Christ's We, the oppressed, find mercy. So today, if I leave you with one thing, it should be this idea of inheritance, how important the inheritance is to God. We don't think of inheritance very highly. We think of it as uh, just what happens when somebody dies. But this inheritance is way more... uh, important, really. It's, it's far, uh, far longer lasting than just uh, somebody willing us some money or belongings. This inheritance is heaven. So remember how faithful God is in bringing justice on the devious and deliverance to the victim. In Christ, God gives you a new inheritance. So trust in him, and he will show you mercy. He will be faithful. He will remain faithful to you. He will protect that inheritance until you meet him face to face. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much that in a time that seems filled with oppression, injustice, unfairness, in you we have all true mercy, all true good, all true justice. We thank you that you call those sinners to account who steal from your people, who oppress your people. And we thank you as well that you promise an inheritance to your people who serve you. Dear God, help us to cast off the sin of the old man and to live as those who know that you are our only hope. Help us to live in a glorifying way before you. We pray this, Lord, in your name, In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.